0: to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, November 6th, 2023, and we're on a week by week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in
1: Alaska. And I'm Guy here on this week's Fish is Small but Mighty Important. I'm ripping off Bernie Gehida there. We're talking about the Pacific herring. And I'm very
0: pleased to introduce our guest, Marina Anderson. She's the program director of the Sustainable Southeast Partnership and a recent Indigenous Leadership Awardee. So congratulations on that. And super excited to have you here today.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here today.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of who you are or your Indigenous homelands?
2: I'm a Haida and Klingit woman, born and raised On Prince of Wales Island, doing a lot of traditional harvesting with my family, learning from aunts and uncles, my father, my mother, my grandmother, and still carrying that out today and sharing it down with the next generations.
1: Where is Prince of Wales Island, and what is the geography and geology like around there?
2: Yeah, so it's actually on your body. You might not realize if you hold up your right hand and kind of make a shape of an L, Am I looking at the back
1: of the front of my hand?
2: You're going to look at the back of your hand and make the shape of an L and then flip your hand so that L is like facing the ground and tuck your three fingers in, your middle ring and pinky finger and you'll see Alaska.
1: Okay. I see it.
2: So Mm -hmm. I'm down on your thumbnail where your thumbnail hits the pad of your thumb. Oh, that's that's a a cool description.
0: description. I like that. (laughs) Yeah,
2: that sounds great, right? So right yeah. next to British Columbia, if you're familiar with Gwaii, it's just a few miles south of the island that I live on, which is Prince of Wales Island.
1: Nice. I'm in the Pacific Northwest, so, you know, we're heavily forested. It's raining today. Is that kind of similar up there, rocky coastlines and all that?
2: Yeah, it's like the Pacific Northwest on steroids, really. We get a lot more rainfall. We could get anywhere between 200, 300 inches of rain per year on Prince of Wales Island. It's a really lush rainforest. It's one of the most diverse places on the face of the earth, actually, when it comes to diversity in the forest and diversity in the ocean. So our land forest leads directly into our ocean forest, the kelp forest.
0: That's amazing. Sounds lovely. So we always like to kind of kick things off too, assuming some folks listening maybe aren't familiar with the fish or the place that we're learning about. So I was hoping you could maybe describe what it might be like to have this fish in hand and what really stands out kind of visually about them.
2: Yeah. So herring are some of the smallest fish that we actually catch on purpose at home. But I'd say it's one of the most important fish in the entire system that we harvest from. They're pretty big when we're catching them because it's right around the time that they're spawning. And Mm -hmm. so they're kind of fat and about seven inches long and beautiful, shiny, silvery, some tints of blue and green. Their scales get all over everything and Mm -hmm. leave you looking like a mermaid, kind of.
0: They really are beautiful. They're like iridescent and shimmery, like you said. What are some of the indigenous names of this fish?
2: Yao is the linget name. For the herring, ow is the hide name for the herring, which is like yow but with a pinched K instead of Y at the beginning. So Yao and Ow are the the two words that we've got for them in our area. How do you say it? Yow. Yow. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Like the
0: basketball player.
2: Yeah, I kind of like (laughs) the basketball player. That's really funny. Yeah.
0: What's it like waiting for the herring? to show up? like What's the kind of, I guess, emotion on your island or in places in Southeast when folks are waiting for these fish to come
2: and spawn? I'll tell you, it is wild when we're waiting for the herring to show up. It's the end of the winter, the beginning of the spring. So we all might have a little bit of what you'd call cabin fever. We've had kind of nothing to harvest for a few months at this point. We stop harvesting deer in December, and then we sit through January and February and March without really much of anything to do. And as people that are harvesting throughout the rest of the year, that leaves us twiddling our thumbs quite a bit and just waiting. And then all of a sudden, the weather starts to change, and we'll get every type of weather, not just within one day, but within 10 minutes, we'll have Mm -hmm. hail, and then it the skies will open up and they'll be bright and blue and then rain will roll back in and then it will start snowing and it will be windy and then the skies open up again and it's just within a matter of a few minutes that this starts happening and we call it fish egg weather or herring Hmm. egg weather and with the changing weather everybody starts to get antsy starts to get excited people start to get their boats ready you know, as if we didn't just have three months of absolutely nothing to do. Mm-hmm. We start getting our boats ready when the weather is changing and then getting saws ready to go out and get branches or trees because when the herring spawn, we have those anchored out so that the herring will spawn on those so that we can harvest those branches with the eggs. And so it's a really exciting time. I can remember being in elementary school and hearing the clunky boots walking down the hallway and looking out the window at the playground and seeing all the different weather coming in at once. And I knew that combination of those weather patterns plus hearing those boots coming down the hallway meant my mom was coming in to my classroom to take me out of school for the next 10 days. Awesome. And there were no questions from the teachers at that point. Yep. They just knew that we were gone for the next week and a half.
1: Important. Yeah. Awesome. So when I look at a fish like this, I naturally assume that it would have been kind of a broadcast spawner, sort of a pelagic thing. But it sounds like if you're putting down structure for them to spawn on, that's not what they're doing at all. So how are these fish actually spawning?
2: You know, they spawn different depending on where they're at. I lived on the East Coast for a little bit and we fished with herring over there. And I was wondering when they had their. Karen sees it as we call it, uh, thinking that they would spawn on something like kelp and rocks over there. But it turns out over on the east coast, they find their ways into riverbeds and spawn in the sandy riverbanks. But over here on the west coast and up in southeast Alaska specifically, they spot out everything along the shoreline. So they hit the rocks, they hit the seaweeds, they hit the kelp. We have really large kelp forests filled with bull kelp and We'll spawn on those. And then, as I mentioned, we anchor branches or entire trees. And herring, in particular, enjoy spawning on those hemlock branches and trees.
0: What does the water look like when they spawn? Or what does the color look like?
2: Oh gosh, I have a story about that, but I don't know how, if it's appropriate for this podcast or not. Just
0: say it and we can cut it if
2: not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very famous. Of me and my childhood <laughs> and it looks like you dump a lot of milk into the ocean mm-hmm. is what it looks like. Our water's kind of dark water, silvery gray water goes from looking like that to this beautiful kind of teal color. It looks like mm-hmm. if you've ever seen glacial fed water or anything like that, it's just absolutely beautiful. And it's kind of opaque. We we say the water's milky. So mm-hmm. If I say the water is milky over there, that means that the herring spawned over that way. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, we were on Red Skip and I said, why does the water look like this? And my mom said, it's milky. And my dad said, it's (laughs) (laughs) jizz. And I am a very literal person. And as a child, I really took a lot of pride in my vocabulary and thought that it was something to share. I was the ringleader oh, for the kids. Man. So I go back to school, and in order to be able to go out and play at recess, we had to finish our milk. And so I'm walking around the cafeteria telling all the kids to drink up their jizz so we can go play. <laughs> <laughs> and crying myself in the principal's office. <laughs> oh my, that's awesome.
0: Uh, that's
2: great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: we'll leave that in. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of these descriptions, including this jizzy water that you're talking about, uh, it's <laughs> remind me of an episode that we did on East Coast Clupeiform fish, the American shad. And when those guys come back, you know, it's not just the fishermen that get excited. You have stripers that follow them back up. And it's kind of like the kickoff for the spring ecosystem. And do you see similar things with this fish over on the West Coast where you're getting these, this whole rest of the environment is kind of keyed into this migration and the spawning season?
2: Totally. Yeah. When we start to get the weather patterns changing and we start to see the whales coming in and you start to see the sea lions everywhere, birds are going crazy, and it just seems like everybody is coming home and as everything's coming back to life again. So we refer to it as the beginning of our year. Because hmm. that's when everything starts up again. When our humpbacks come home, it's when the seagulls start going crazy. Start seeing sea lions um, running alongside of you in your boat and everything. So it's not just the people that are moving around, that are active and are out there to harvest, but it's everybody else that's out there with us. That's exciting, and it, like I think it's yeah. just a really true depiction of who we are as like indigenous people of the place too, right? We're not separate from anybody in the ocean, anybody in the land. We're just another part of the ecosystem. And so when you think of it like that, it's natural for all of us to gravitate back to the herring ground when they're spawning.
1: Nice.
0: So say you've set out these hemlock branches, the herring have spawned, kind of what happens next? And who did you learn from growing up to kind of participate in that harvest?
2: Yeah, it's really fun. It's kind of like a game, except if you lose... You just don't eat and your community doesn't eat. So it's a game that you really want to win and you want everybody to win the game too. When we anchor out the branches, we continuously monitor the weather because if there's a swell that comes up that could bring a lot of sand up and get sand into the herring eggs and then all of a sudden you have really white teeth Mm -hmm. because you're eating a lot of sand throughout the year and that's just not something that we can deliver to our elders so you know, we'll monitor and see if it's gonna be tossing and turning out there. We'll pull the branches and maybe bring them to an inner island or pull them completely at that time. We also move them around with the spawn. So we try to predict where the spawn is going next. The spawn Mm -hmm. happens very quickly. And so for us to be able to make sure that our branches have enough eggs, it's important for us to be able to follow that spawn. And actually get ahead of that spawn so that our branches are in the water before the herring spawns. And then when we pull them up, it's just, their hemlock branches. It's a coniferous tree and it has needles all along it and is just loaded with herring eggs. There are these little white dots that look like the end of the end of a ballpoint pen and they are kind of translucent from far away. It looks like a white mass and they stick to themselves, they stick to the branches, we pull them off of branches to eat them. We also harvest them on kelp when they lay their eggs on kelp and we eat the kelp with the eggs and so we get that nutritional value as well. There's a type of algae seaweed called net and it's very valuable if you find net, Similar to hair, it looks like a ball of black hair with a bunch (laughs) of eggs on it. And then we enjoy them many different ways. My favorite is just pulling them straight out of the ocean and eating them. Then most people will stick them in a pot of boiling water for maybe 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds, but not much longer than that because they can get rubbery and just have them with soy sauce or butter or as they are, have them with wasabi, put them in salads, put them in soup just all different ways that they're enjoyed and we usually consume a lot of them in the spring. I think this last year my mom ate them for every meal every day for 12 days straight.
1: Nice. Wow. Is there any way to preserve these or is this kind of just eat them while you got them because then they're gone?
2: Oh yeah we have ways to preserve really like everything so you know one way that is most commonly used these days is freezing them, best if you freeze them in some water, best if you freeze them in salt water from the ocean. Mm -hmm. But an older way of of preserving them would be salting them, just similar to how you would salt fish. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how the city that I live near was established, was it was a herring saltery. And so that you just pack a ton of salt around the eggs. And then when it's time to eat them, you rinse the eggs very well to pull out a lot of that salt and it's just like as if they're fresh and then we do a lot of pickling as well a lot of pickling that I do is with a vinegar that I make by making like a strong kombucha with some okay. of our local tea and then cool. pickle the eggs in there sometimes add things like turmeric so that they're bright yellow so that the kids looking think that it's fun and want to eat them <laughs> and then another way is drying them as well so you can sun dry the eggs if you have the sun. But with us being a rainforest, a lot of times those aren't necessarily laid out in the sun for drying. But when you dry them in the sun on kelp, it's like uh, a potato chip that tastes like the ocean.
0: Oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Do they kind of pop in your mouth when you bite them? Like when they're fresh or what's the texture like?
2: Yeah, herring eggs pop a lot in your mouth. When you're biting them, you could hear everybody in the room. It's kind of funny. It's not like a movie theater snack by any means they're really loud kind of like when you're the only person eating chips and you're really aware that you're the only person eating chips you're very aware (laughs) if you're the only person (laughs) eating herring eggs in the room and they pop around in your mouth and the flavor I would compare it to I don't know the ocean they just taste like we're supposed to be eating them okay
0: and are all generations kind of involved with the harvest or the preparation from kids all the way up to elders or what's kind of the partitioning of that
2: The elders would be talking about their time with herring eggs and what it was like during their time and maybe different methods, but they're not usually out on the boat with us harvesting. We usually have adults and then kids coming out to learn and helping distribute it to the elders when it gets back to shore. A lot of times when I get back to shore at the docks, I'll see elders lined up at the top of the docks and When we pull up and bring toads up, we just start handing out bags to them right there. Mm -hmm. And the ones that aren't there, we send kids on their way to go bring those eggs to the elders. Usually when they do that, they show up, the elders will start to tell those kids about stories of their time. They'll start to tell them about when they remember that there was a spring spawn and a summer spawn. Or they'll tell them about how far the spawn used to stretch to or where they used to harvest them or what kinds of trees they were looking for and what areas they were sitting in when they found them.
0: It's a nice passing of, yeah, kind of knowledge and stories down
1: That's cool. Yeah. In addition to harvesting the eggs, you also harvest some of the adults. So I'm curious how that was traditionally done and if that's changed at all today.
2: Yeah. A lot of that's done with like them washing up into pools and then not all making it back out when the tide goes out because we have really big tides. We have close to 20 foot tides on Prince of Love Island. When I was a kid, or even these days, we'll do a calf net, but then also just chasing them around with our hands and with buckets and just grabbing buckets full or dip nets right into the ocean. Cool.
0: Nice. Guy and I both have a picture that was from Catchamack Bay, but we use like a sabiki rig with
2: little hooks. And yeah really, oh, yeah, really
0: need to catch them. Kind of a different technique than what you're talking about, but
2: something. See, that works yeah. too. I know a lot of people do that. You know, our focus is to get their eggs. Herring themselves is the second thing that we focus on after that. So usually that's just for like uh, some consumption and then for some fishermen to have some for bait. But really our main focus is those eggs.
0: Okay, we're very excited to have a new correspondent, Maria Dosal. She's going to be joining us for what we're calling Minute with Maria, whenever we're featuring Indigenous guests or fish that are strongly woven into Indigenous communities and life ways.
3: Hi, thank you for having me, Kagasa My name is Maria Dosal. I'm currently working and living on Cho'gyang lands. I'm originally from Agdegao lands of Kinko, of Alaska, and I'm also an Agdegao tribe member. So that means I'm from Alaska. Fish are so important to me and my family and my culture because that's what sustains us. We've also been stewards of the land that we're from for generations and generations.
0: It seems like acknowledging the land is a really important expression of gratitude and a way to honor indigenous people who've been living and working on the land for a very long time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Giving appreciation to where you're from is huge. And when I hear Marina talk about where she's from and her culture... I have a very personal connection with that because I also share those same feelings for where I'm from. With Marina and her family being Clinket from that area, we're right across the water from each other. So we share the same ocean between us and the same fish that travel those waters.
0: That's awesome. So when you're hearing her talking about her people's connection to Pacific herring, what are your feelings and what's really standing out to you?
3: Well, personally, I was able to fish for herring And Sitka. And so those tastes are really familiar and I'm craving it as she's talking about it.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Are there any kind of visuals you can add to this conversation in terms of your experiences with this fish?
3: Yeah, when she's talking about the shimmery water of the herring scales, that's really fresh in my mind when I think about herring and the rainbow colors that shine in the water. It's so beautiful. She really paints a really good picture for us. And not only that, but the hype that comes with it, with all the sounds of the birds and the whales and the airplanes that are scouting for herring and the boats running in the water and the kids who are also excited to be there and put the branches in the water to collect grow. It's so lovely to hear. And I just... Want to be part of it?
0: Awesome. We're gonna get back to talking with Marina. What are some of the biggest threats facing herring right now, if any?
2: One well, biggest threat is the sacro fishery for a herring, and the sacro fishery is a fishery where they commercially purse seine for the herring, specifically for the eggs that are still inside of the herring. So the herring don't have a chance at all to to spawn. They catch the pregnant herring and kill them and take out all of their eggs so that they could be shipped over to Asia. And they're a key species, right? So it's really important that we protect them not only because it's something that We eat and we look forward to in the spring, but it's something that everybody's coming back for. It's something that the king salmon need. It's what the, all of the other fish in the ocean are really looking for is the herring that are, it's like, we think of like a cliff bar or boost of energy. These one little herring for a king salmon is like putting 40 cliff bars into its body.
1: It's interesting. One of the biggest shifts that sort of I've been seeing in fisheries management over the last decade is from single stock management to multi species management, and no bigger than in the you know clupeid fisheries that are these bases of the food webs where you're going from. Okay, thinking about instead of maximizing the yield of each individual fishery because you can't do that for the larger ones and and maximizing for whales and birds and people and all that stuff without having more of these fish escape and be available and be able to spawn i know they're trying it with you know minhaden and striped bass out on the atlantic coast but hopefully that'll get there because that is very important thing that you bring up marina
2: It is really important to consider that. And like you said, there are so many different ecosystems that are tied to each other that are to map that completely. But a good way to start mapping that is to include local indigenous people at the forefront of the fisheries management. Because for thousands of years, we have been looking at all of these ecosystems as a whole, not as separate ecosystems and how they're in relation with each other. And so for a long time, and still to this day, that knowledge is generally disregarded, even if there's official testimony that's on record. And that's something that is really detrimental when it comes to managing fisheries and forests and kind of everything that happens on the land and with the water is ignoring that part of the ecosystem, which is the human people.
0: Have you seen any changes in your lifetime or have others noticed kind of longer term changes with this fish or just the other connections with some of the other fish and wildlife you mentioned?
2: So there are a lot less herring and herring spawning than when I was a child and I still think that I'm basically a child. I'm 30 years old and so I've not been on this planet for very long but within that really short time frame I've seen the spawn shrink miles and miles. And so we went from having the herring spawn all the way around this island that is called Fish Egg Island to not really even spawning in that area anymore. And because of that you know the health of the ocean's a lot different. Many different things lead into declination of species. And so when you think about king salmon, you could think about the size of them being a lot smaller. And some of that could be and is from fishing the big ones and taking the big ones. But a lot of that is also because a lot of their food sources is being taken away as well.
1: I'm interested in the other way to interpret it in terms of, have you seen any changes in terms of native representation in the management front?
2: You know, when it comes to the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council, we just secured this last year uh, one Indigenous seat on that council. When you think about the entirety of of statehood and and that council's existence, that took a really long time to get there. And so there's a lot of catch-up that we have to do, and that's just one seat. I was at the Board of Fish meeting last year in 2022, and at that board of fish meeting, I stopped through three days of testimony, listening to people testify, and almost every single person who was indigenous that testified spoke about those herring eggs either being delivered to them on branches and them shipping them to other family members across the state, across the country, or their experiences harvesting and getting the branches and the trees to set into the ocean to pull those, and then. Taking them off of the branches of the family. And we get to the last day of the Board of Fish meeting and somebody actually brought herring eggs on branches Mm -hmm. in, a Native woman did. They pass them around the table and the Board of Fish is looking at these herring eggs on branches. And after three days of testimony, one of the members of the board asked if we, the Likwinka people, Individually glue or stick each of these eggs onto those branches ourselves. Oh man. Which is very frustrating. Yeah.
0: What are some things you could educate, like folks visiting or just folks in general, about respecting these fish or, you know, coming to your area? Oh gosh, there's so many
2: messages I would like to give (laughs) people when they're coming to our area to visit and to be there. You know, tread lightly is something that I I would say. The term Leave No Trace is really funny and not something I necessarily believe in because every movement that you make on the land or on the water here is going to have an impact on the ecosystem and on the surrounding people. So just to make sure that those movements that I made are responsible ones. you know, I think it's really important to support the efforts that are on the ground when it comes to local resource management especially indigenous uh, local resource management.
0: What do you wish for your descendants in terms of the future of this fish?
2: Such a hard question. We just want the next generation to be thriving, right? We've been in operating since I was a kid in this mode of like a scarcity mindset, doing whatever we can to help preserve and protect things and trying to get our voices at the forefront as you know advocates for these fish and for other things in our ecosystems. But what I really wish for the, the next generations is one that the knowledge that we hold today when it comes to harvesting and taking care of these herring, I hope that's passed down and that the next generation operates with confidence when it comes to that. But I also hope that those people in the next generation are at the table when it comes to management and decision-making with the herring and with the herring eggs and of course i hope that the population is flourishing and thriving and that there is not a concern that we have today that they're going to be gone because if the herring go then kind of everything starts to fall apart and it affects our people too for one food is very expensive or not available in some of our places from grocery stores and when it is available, it's pretty poor quality food and we deserve to be putting the best food possible like into our bodies, but it doesn't just feed our bodies, it feeds our spirit as well. When we have a year where it's hard to get those eggs, you see it reflected socially within our communities. And you see that right now on the Yukon River, where a lot of our relatives aren't able to harvest any of their salmon. The collective mental health in the area has declined because of this lack of access and the fear that it's not gonna be there for the next generation. Skipping one year is a lot because the kids learn everything year by year and they build up a little bit more knowledge and skipping one year is dangerous. It's a big loss.
1: Is there any way that people who aren't living in Southeast Alaska, who aren't Alaska Natives, can potentially contribute to the cause.
2: I think being able to educate themselves and to educate others on any issues that have to do with the health of the herring population is something that's really important to advocate for and recommend to support whatever efforts the local tribal government has on the ground at the time.
0: We've covered a lot and clearly a very important fish to the communities and to the larger ecosystem, but is there anything else that we've missed or
2: that you'd like to say? I think that the most important thing to stress is that it's never one thing that is more important than the other. Everything in our forests, in our ocean, it all relies on each other and the health of each other, and that's including the people. So we have to have healthy forests and healthy oceans to have healthy people and communities, and we have to have healthy communities and people to be able to have these healthy forests and oceans because our people should be the ones that are out there monitoring and managing these resources as well. And it also not just for the health of our people in our region and the place in our region, it's for the health of the world as well. This area takes care of a lot of herrings that support a lot of different animals and algae and everything within the pacific ocean and as we know nothing is really separate right
0: okay well thank you so much this was yeah super appreciate learning from you and for you sharing your perspectives with us thank you okay Uh we'll get out there and enjoy all the fish and appreciate and respect the pacific herring and start making those connections it seems like yeah fish are linked very closely with people and the larger ecosystems definitely Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebek, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A. F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.